chapter. Now when the Pharisees and some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem gathered around him, they noticed that some of Jesus' disciples were eating with defiled hands, that is, without washing them. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they thoroughly wash their hands, thus observing the tradition of the elders, and they do not eat anything from the market unless they wash it, and there are also many other traditions that they observe, the washing of cups, pots, and bronze kettles. So the Pharisees and the scribes ask him, why do your disciples not live according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? He said to them, Isaiah prophesied rightly about you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching human precepts as doctrines. You abandon the commandment of God and hold to human tradition. Then he called the crowd again and said to them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside a person that by going in can defile, but the things that come out are what defile. For it is from within, from the human heart, that evil intentions come, fornication, theft, murder, adultery, avarice, wickedness, deceit, licentiousness, envy, slander, pride, folly. All these things come from within, and they defile a person. The Gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. Our children's time today is actually the baptism. So when we get to the baptism after the hymn, after the sermon, I'd like any children in the congregation to come forward and uh, watch what happened to you at some point in your early life, probably. This uh, series that we've been doing of Faces of Faith is actually a series of remembering the saints of the church, both Old Testament and New Testament saints, which is why we sang the hymn, Uh, for all the saints as the opening hymn today. Today we're talking about Lydia. And Lydia used to be a quite common name. I think it's making a comeback. I've noticed that there's now some children named Lydia. But it's been maybe three generations since that name was used uh, commonly. But in one congregation that I served, there were two Lydias. The older one of them still drove in the early 1980s the last car that her husband had purchased new, a 1950 DeSoto. This was an indication of her desire to live in the past. The younger Lydia, by contrast, lived in the future. Her husband was an auto mechanic. Both he and Lydia, as preteens, had fled eastern Germany with their families ahead of the advancing Soviet armies at the end of World War II. They'd seen a a lot of death and destruction in that time. They met in the United States, married, and raised four children. In addition, because of the scourge of alcoholism among those scarred by the war, they watched over a big network of nieces and nephews to help them get established as young adults. Their home was always a place of hospitality. 
If someone dropped by for a visit, the China came out to serve really fine coffee and some kind of cake. There, there was always cake, along with gracious and caring conversation. Lydia passed this gift of hospitality on to her children who have carried it forward. In Acts, there's only one section that's written in the first person, and it's what we read today. Although it begins one verse earlier, it begins at verse 10, and it concludes with the end of the chapter. We do not know why this is the only section that's written in the first person. Is it a first-person account of Luke, who wrote both the book of Acts and the Gospel of Luke? Or is it copied from a travel diary of one of Paul's companions? We don't know. But this account of the mission in Philippi begins, and this first-person account begins and ends with Lydia, indicating how important she was to it. She's described as a worshiper of God, which means a Gentile who worshipped Israel's God. Thyatira, Lydia's city of origin, was in the Roman district of Lydia and was long noted for its production of purple dye. Her name may have been a result of her town and area of origin. Philippi was the first major stop on Paul's European mission. Luke underscores how thoroughly Gentile it was, noting that it was a Roman city and that it was in Macedonia, a Roman colony. Unlike most cities that Paul visited, there was no synagogue there for him to visit. Instead, he had to go to what Luke describes as a place of prayer outside the city gate to find religious people to evangelize. We guess that Lydia, as a Gentile, was attracted to the Jewish way of life in the synagogue while she was living in Thyatira. Her attachment to Judaism was strong enough that she maintained those ties even when she was in Philippi, where there was a small Jewish community and no synagogue. Lydia, Paul's first European convert, was unusual for the time. A dealer in purple cloth meant that she was a successful businesswoman. Probably she was a traveling merchant. Purple was the most expensive dye, so she was dealing with luxury goods, which meant that they had great profit margins. She was the apparent leader of her household. No man is mentioned when the baptism of her and her household is reported. These two facts indicate that she occupied a fairly high social and economic status, as does the fact that Luke mentions both her name and her city of origin. Her first act as a disciple was hospitality. She invites the apostles into her home. Later, after Paul and Silas were released from prison, her home became the meeting place of the growing Christian community in Philippi and a source of ongoing support for Paul's European mission. We assume that she was the leader and the patron of the Philippian church. She used her wealth to support the church, and she risked her reputation as a businesswoman to house Jewish foreigners recently released from prison. 
The first congregation I served as pastor was a small German congregation in a German community in Queens, New York. They never had German services, but they, they were, it was made up mostly of people of German background. The congregation was founded in August 1924. I knew that when I accepted the call, but I didn't yet know that the organizational meeting took place in a tavern before there was ever a worship service. Now, this is really strange because, you know, the way you start a church is you get to meet people and you gather people, and then eventually you have enough people that you can have a worship service. And once you've got 50, 75 people attending worship, you start to make plans to actually organize as a congregation. Here they did it completely backwards. The reason was that the founding pastor, another George, had been removed from the clergy roster, or defrocked as it's sometimes referred to, as a result of risky investment decisions that members of the council of his previous congregation had made. Today they would call these non-traditional investments. Uh, what had happened was that um, Members of the council had invested their own money in the potash trade, which was very hot at the time. And uh, the deal was that they expected they were each going to make a lot of money, you know, at least double their investment, and that the, the amount that they made, they were going to contribute to the congregation. This was, at the time, the fastest-growing congregation in New York City, and they wanted to help catapult it forward. Instead, they all lost their shirts. And so people blamed the pastor because the pastor didn't try to talk them out of it. Well, you know, this was a pastor. Like most pastors, he was naive about finance, and he suffered for it. Within two months of his removal from ministry, prominent members of his former congregation met without the pastor present in the tavern and formed a congregation to take care of him, to give him a job. Soon afterward, a professional photograph was taken of the new council and their pastor. Now, remember, this is 1924, where some places, well, in many congregations, women couldn't even vote. But in this photo, there is one modestly but well-dressed woman whose name was Adelheid Marveda, an early 20th century Lydia. When I saw this photograph and marveled that a woman was on the first council of this congregation, I was told the story of how central she was to the early years of that congregation. She was a single woman whose father had been a successful businessman and she worked in his business. She knew about organization, and she was council secretary until her death about 20 years later. She had resources, and she used them to support the congregation in its early days. She was the person who knew, as the secretary of the congregation, how to file the papers to actually organize it. She was a gracious, professional woman of means who poured herself into this new congregation in what was then a growing neighborhood. Most of us have the opportunity to be modern-day Lydia's. 
using our resources and our abilities to support the mission of Jesus Christ. That can be supporting the congregation financially, but it can also mean praying for those in need, showing hospitality to neighbors and friends, or just speaking kindly and encouragingly about the leaders of this congregation of believers in Jesus Christ. All of us, like Lydia and Adelheit, have a God-given role to play in the community of faith gathered around Jesus' death and resurrection. Like Landon today, we are baptized into Jesus' death and resurrection. We are joined to Christ and to one another by dying and rising in baptism. May the Lord open our hearts, as he did Lydia's, to hear and to respond to the good news of Jesus Christ.